Good morning and welcome to the broadcast of Faith Mountain Ministries and happy Easter to every one of you. Now usually this time of year I preach a message called Why I Believe, which is about how all of the apostles died. I know, sounds like a real downer, doesn't it? But the story is that these guys were cowards and fearful before the resurrection. Yet after the resurrection, separately, they went out all over the world preaching the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and died for that gospel. And that's amazing. The transformation alone tells us that the resurrection did something. And what was the message that they preached? They encountered various religious systems throughout the world, and they brought the simplicity of the message of Jesus Christ, saving grace alone. You would think that people would like it when things get simple, but they don't, especially if religion has built up a system of idolatry that is revenue generating when somebody comes along and preaches trust in Jesus Christ alone and stop believing in and practicing the old system, that old system feels under threat. And it's those threatened religious systems that cause the death of most of the martyrs of today. Both then and now, people are martyred preaching the simplicity of the gospel. You don't get martyred for making it more complicated. That's human nature. That's what we want to do. We want to make things complicated. And this is the way the gospel has gone for the last 2,000 years. I want to read you a message that was given in the year 400 AD by St. John Chrysostom. He's known as the golden-mouthed preacher and uh, one of the greatest orators of the gospel ever. I want to start with his brief Easter message. Here it is. If anyone is devout and a lover of God, let him enjoy this beautiful and radiant festival. If anyone is a grateful servant, let him rejoicing enter into the joy of his Lord. If anyone has wearied himself in fasting, let him now receive recompense. If anyone has labored from the first hour, let him today receive the just reward. If anyone has come in at the third hour with thanksgiving, let him feast. If anyone has arrived at the sixth hour, let him have no misgivings, for he shall suffer no loss. If anyone has delayed until the ninth hour, let him draw near without hesitation. If anyone has arrived even at the eleventh hour, let him not fear on account of tardiness. For the master is gracious and receives the last even as the first. He gives rest to him who comes at the eleventh hour, just as to him who's labored from the first. He has mercy upon the last and cares for the first. To the one he gives and to the other he is gracious. He both honors the work and praises the intention. Enter all of you, therefore, into the joy of our Lord. And whether first or last, receive your reward. O rich and poor, one with another, dance for joy. You aesthetics and you negligent, celebrate the day. You who fasted and you who disregarded the fast, rejoice today. The table is rich laden. Feast royally, all of you. The calf is fatted. Let no one go forth hungry. Let all partake of the feast of faith. Let all receive the riches of goodness. Let no one lament his poverty, for the universal kingdom has been revealed. Let no one mourn his transgressions, for pardon has dawned from the grave. Let no one fear death, for the Savior's death has set us free. 
He who was taken by death has annihilated it. He descended into Hades and took Hades captive. He embittered it when it tasted his flesh. And anticipating this, Isaiah exclaimed, Hades was embittered when it encountered you in the lower regions. It was embittered for it was abolished. It was embittered for it was mocked. It was embittered for it was purged. It was embittered for it was despoiled. It was embittered for it was bound in chains. It took a body and came upon God. It took earth and encountered heaven. It took what it saw and crumbled before what it had not seen. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Christ is risen and you are overthrown. Christ is risen and the demons are fallen. Christ is risen and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen and life reigns. Christ is risen and not one dead remains in the tomb. For Christ being raised from the dead has become the first fruits of them who have slept. To him be glory and might unto the age of ages. Amen. What a message from John Chrysostom from the year 400 A.D. There's a common phrase that's used today to compare two things, how it started and how it's going. For example, we can read in Exodus chapter 19 and 20 how the Old Testament law started with 10 commandments. And by the time Jesus enters the world, we have 613. How it started is quite simple. How it's going became quite complicated. And when Jesus showed up, he didn't validate the complication. He didn't applaud our intelligence and affirm our brilliance. He returned us to simplicity, a simplicity that went beyond what we were willing to understand. And it still does today. The complication had actually itself become a barrier to relationship with God. And I'd like to suggest to you today that in many ways we've done the same thing with the New Covenant as the Pharisees did with the Old Covenant. In Koine Greek, the word salvation means simply to be rescued from evil, attack, or danger. Sozo, saved, delivered, healed. We are saved as in saved from death. We didn't need to be rescued from the Father. We needed to be rescued from sin, death, and hell. The message of Easter is that the death of Christ is sufficient for more than we could even begin to imagine, and it's available to more than we could ever even begin to approve in our human justice system. That Death has been slain, and Christ's victory in Hades, or hell, delivers us from the fear of death. The Bible speaks of this work in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. It says, So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. John chapter 5, verse 25 says, The hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26 says, The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Ephesians 4, verse 8 says, Therefore it is said, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does that mean? But that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. 
He who descended is he who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Colossians 2.15 says, He disarmed principalities and powers and made a public example of them, triumphing over them. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 14, says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same nature that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death are subject to lifelong bondage. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 18, says, Christ was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and preached to the spirits in prison. 1 Peter 4 verse 6 says, The gospel is preached even to the dead, that those judged in the flesh like men might live in the spirit according to God. The earliest Christians saw Christ's victory over hell on the cross and in the resurrection as the center point of the gospel story. Salvation has ransomed and redeemed us from sin and death back to union with God once again. This was repeated and written about over and over again by early Christians. Yet a thousand years after the New Testament was written, a new idea appeared. This new idea was that Jesus Christ, suffering and death, paid the Father a debt that you and I owe for our sins. The church began to make a shift from the idea that Jesus rescued and ransomed us from darkness and death into the idea that he repaid something that was owed to God. In the 11th century, St. Anselm, the Archbishop of Canterbury, became the first person to clearly formulate this idea. He said, God cannot forgive our sins without punishment. He preached that if God treated sinner and sinless people alike, that would constitute an injustice. And he reasoned that it was necessary to give God satisfaction. And by satisfaction, he meant that punishment was absolutely necessary for our great offense against God's honor. Now, this made perfect sense to the people of his time and his nation because they were under a feudal system and there was a tremendous emphasis on preserving a person's honor. As a matter of fact, a feudal lord was not actually free to forgive anyone. He could not forgive an offense or an insult, even if the offender apologized, even if they asked for forgiveness and admitted their guilt. The Lord of the land was obliged to demand the satisfaction of their honor to sustain the social order of the day. Anselm said that since God's honor is greater than any earthly ruler, after all, he is the Lord of lords, then no sacrifice any human could make could ever restore it. Even our own death wouldn't be sufficient because a sinner would be an impure offering. So he used the cultural system of the government and social order of the day as an illustration to somehow try to communicate the gospel. And it worked. But it more than worked. It fundamentally changed how we in the West see the cross. He said that Christ dying on the cross offered the Father a perfect, holy sacrifice. 
And that's what gave the father satisfaction for his offended honor. But see, this itself was an offense because it really wasn't Christ's debt to pay. It was ours. He paid the debt to the Father in our place, according to Anselm. In other words, he paid a debt we did not owe, and I owed a debt I couldn't pay. This put the Father in a place of obligation to the Son. Now the Father, however reluctant, owed the Son a reward. Anselm wrote, One who freely gives a gift so great to God must not be without reward. If the son willed to gift his reward to others, could the father justly prohibit or refuse to bestow it upon them? If the son wants to bestow his reward upon us, how could the father stop him? So to the people in Anselm's culture, a legal case had now been made that the offended Lord, that is God the Father, was legally wrangled into reluctantly giving us grace because Jesus had put him in this position, being the innocent substitute sacrifice for us. Thus, Western theology shifted its perspective of salvation from the simplicity that the cross of Christ saved us from sin, death, and hell by the sacrifice of God himself into the perspective that Jesus came on a rescue mission, but to rescue us from an angry, wrathful God. What started in simplicity was about to get a lot more complicated. And notice that the shift in the early days of Christianity until now has occurred here. Originally, the work of Christ is aimed squarely at sin, death, and hell. He defeats it and he sets us free. Now, the work of Christ is aimed at the Father. Now Jesus Christ pays our debt to the Father so that he has to forgive us. Originally, salvation was a victory. Now it's a transaction where you pay your debt to the Father with the currency of the blood of Christ. The problem with this transaction over time is the ideas we needed to be saved from sin, death, and hell, which is our enemy, begins to diminish. A new idea that we need to be saved from justice And the retribution of that justice begins to grow much stronger. And now through the years, a lot of brilliant theologians pondered over these ideas. And many insisted that, listen, Christ didn't die to twist the Father's arm to give us grace. They stood on the reality that the Trinity has always been in harmony and united in our reconciliation. And during the medieval era, this new idea of Christ's sacrifice being like satisfying a feudal Lord's honor was easy to understand for the people of the day and a very easy idea to spread. When ideas stick around long enough, they take root and they spawn new ideas. And now we live in a world where salvation has become an endlessly debated theological concept. The unity of agreements in the work of the cross that held for the first thousand years of Christianity, as detailed in the sermon that I just read from John Chrysostom, it was shattered as hundreds of different ways of interpreting Scripture emerged in light of paying off the Father. Anselm's notion that Christ's death satisfied the requirement for restoring God's honor became known as the satisfaction theory of atonement. But the theories didn't stop there. Later on, theologians saw in Christ's death not just satisfying God's honor, but also taking upon himself the cumulative debt of sin. In doing this, he becomes our substitute. So this came to be known as substitutionary atonement theory. 
Other theologians put forth the idea that Christ not only satisfied God's honor, not only did he uh, triumph in victory over death, but he took the punishment that we deserved. This came to be known as penal substitutionary atonement theory. Penal meaning penalty. So notice how things move along here. In Anselm's original theory, Christ died on the cross so God wouldn't have to punish us for our sins. Later theologians came to believe that the cross was the punishment for our sins. Then some people said that Christ didn't just take our death to bear our punishment, but he also absorbed the raw, brutal, unbridled, just wrath of God. John Calvin laid hold of and popularized this view when he wrote, Nothing has been done if Christ had endured only corporeal death. In order to interpose between us and God's anger and satisfy his righteous judgment, it was necessary that he should feel the weight of divine vengeance. Could things possibly get more complicated? Of course they could. I remember as a young man traveling the world preaching the gospel, encountering for the first time Christians from the East, and watching how astonished they were at my evangelical theology. They were appalled to learn any Christian believes that Christ died to pay our debt to satisfy the Father's wrath. As a young man, I realized there were opposing views of what happened on the cross from the same company of people who claimed Jesus as Savior, and I knew that this was a journey I had to take, and I'm really glad I did. One of my favorite verses to preach from is John chapter 2, verse 2, which says that Christ himself is the propitiation for our, our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. I've sought over the years to rightly define propitiation here, and, and we need to go back to the Greek in this one. It's the word hilasmos. Some say it should be translated as expiation or reparation or payment for a debt, making things fair and square with God. Propitiation has largely been defined as to step in as a substitute to appease the rage of an offended God. But if you look up 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, you might see in your Bible either the word expiation or propitiation, depending on which way the translators lean theologically. But I prefer to go back to the rabbis to find out when they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Koine Greek, or the Septuagint, how did they translate Helasmos? And how do the apostles and epistle writers of the New Testament see it? The Jewish scholars who produced the Septuagint defined it as mercy. Psalm 129 and 130, the term is used, and there it means mercy. In Exodus chapter 25, verses 17 through 22, it's the term hilasterion, which is used here for God enthroned upon the cherubim. So it's a picture of the mercy seat, that place where we meet with God and find mercy and grace. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ uses a version of Lasmos when he speaks of the penitent publican praying, Have mercy on me. The Greek here is not the usual eleison me, or as in kyrie eleison but me. Neither the words expiation or propitiation would make any sense there at all, so the translators are forced to render it as it's supposed to be, which is simply mercy. So let's go back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, and think of it like this. He himself is the mercy or the grace for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. The mercy seat, the place where God and man meet and find grace in the eyes of of the Father himself. 
for the Father himself loves us. It's the prodigal son coming home to a restored honor that goes far beyond the justice system of the feudal lords of St. Anselm's day. See, part of the debate over the meaning of these Greek words comes from the fact that theology in the West was carefully built upon the foundation of reading the Bible for generations in Latin. St. Jerome, from where we get their Latin translation, skipped over various Latin words for mercy for 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, and used the term propitiato. The Western Christians studied the Bible in Latin. They saw Jerome's word choice instead of Latin mercy words like misericordia and clementia and, and uh, landed on this idea that the cross was not a rescue operation from sin, but a repayment of justice for God's wrath. And we're not going to remove the word propitiation from the Bible. I'm not suggesting we do that at all, but I am suggesting that we rightly define it. And it's defined as mercy. It's defined as grace. One thing we can all agree upon, though, in light of all the things that we're studying here today, is that Jesus saves. But even that has become messy over the last 2,000 years. Catholics believe that one must be baptized or a believing member of the church and not die with unconfessed mortal sin on the soul. Protestants, on the other hand, reject the idea that salvation comes through the church alone. For Protestants, we're saved by God's grace alone, not anything that we do. Salvation can be gained prayerfully, admitting to God that one is a sinner, claiming Christ, death and payment for those sins, and committing oneself to Christ as Savior. We say some version of the sinner's prayer, and it usually covers those things. This offers kind of a concise entry point to salvation, since people are free to say the prayer or not, and accept to reject salvation as an exercise or act of free will. Others within the Protestant tradition will insist that salvation can't be based on anything we do, not even saying a prayer. Every person deserves hell since all have sinned. But God chose some, the elect, to receive his grace. Nothing the elect do earns them salvation. It's entirely a matter of God's mysterious will. At the end, the elect receive God's mercy. That's called predestination. Still, others add that God chooses who will and will not be saved. Some will receive his grace, and those who will be stuck in sin at the end will receive not God's mercy, but his justice. That's called double predestination. I went through all the variations of theology. We'd be here for weeks. And yet, Easter brings back the center of it all, and that's the cross. I think we can find simple clarity in listening to Jesus himself while hanging on the cross, suffering death just as a man, being murdered by his own creation. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If God was like a feudal lord, he'd not be able to do this. If God's wrath was the issue here, humanity would have never survived the resurrection, for the resurrection would have been an occasion for revenge. But we often see sin as a legal matter. Sin is viewed like we broke the law. You got a speeding ticket. Jesus pays our debt, like somebody else gives you money to pay your speeding ticket. We spent 2,000 years turning the grace of the cross into a transaction to pay off a debt. But let's go back to how we view sin. Sin is not a legal matter. It's a medical matter. Think of it like that. Think of the difference between legality and medical issues. Sin's not a legal matter. It's a medical matter. Sin is death. It's poison in our veins, killing us from the inside out. Nobody could be freed from sin on our behalf any more than someone else could take chemotherapy for your cancer. 
We become addicted to sin. We even cling to our precious sins that are killing us. Mere forgiveness is not what we need when we're sick. We need healing. John the Baptist defined and identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not just the penalty for sin, but the sin itself. John 8 verse 34 said, Anyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave doesn't continue in the house forever. The son continues forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Forgiveness must be free. Grace must be free if it's to be grace at all. We owe God a great debt for our freedom that we could never repay. But God simply cancels the debt. It's like the man in the parable that Jesus told about in Luke chapter 7, where he said a certain creditor had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they couldn't pay, he forgave them both. God gives us forgiveness and mercy without requiring satisfaction of his honor or repayment of our debt. And that's exactly how we're supposed to forgive one another, isn't it? We give grace without demanding restitution or requiring anything of someone else. Every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, we repeat this principle. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. St. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. In Colossians 3, he writes, If you have a complaint against another, forgive each other just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. If we give grace like Christ, then we end up doing the very thing that really bothered St. Anselm and so many Western Christians. We treat sinner and sinless the same. We give freedom to captive and prisoner alike, just like Jesus. We need freedom. That's what the cross and the resurrection tells us, that Jesus Christ, by his goodness and grace, has set us free. This freedom, this ability to walk through life being loved by God and loving others as Christ with no fear of death, this is salvation. When we sin now, we forget Jesus, we become selfish, and we fall. We fall down sometimes willingly, and in our weakness, you know what? God picks us up and he sets us on our feet again. If there's any struggle left in this life, it's the struggle of walking in the freedom of our birthright as sons and daughters, of a good father. You might look at some of these other ideas of salvation and wonder why in the world we made this so complicated. I think one of the reasons for the success of the idea of satisfaction or substitutionary atonement theory is the ideas of transaction or exchanging this for that are so much easier for us to grasp than to comprehend the vast and unreasonable love of God. To the human ego, there's tremendous stress that we feel over being forgiven for free. In life, it feels like anything that comes to us for free comes with obligations and strings attached. We've trained ourselves to trust no one and question everybody's motivation, including God. And that's why, as Paul wrote, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Perhaps we've wasted good brain power trying to make sense out of love, trying to wrap our minds around grace, trying to make it fit within our understandings of justice. Every person that comes with an atonement theory produces a scripture they believe that proves their interpretation is correct. Their opponents produce other scriptures that refute the first theory and vindicate their own. But the reality is everybody's theory is actually founded on some, something in the Bible. Our ability to find the multitude of interpretations of the scriptures, what happens when a multitude of people look at the same bunch of words that we keep rearranging one century after another to produce 
an innumerable amount of opposing theologies. And what we're doing is trying to come to an irrefutable conclusion. But the Bible is not supposed to be leading us to conclusions. It's supposed to lead us to Christ. It's not introducing us to a formula. It's introducing us to a father. It's not inviting us to a transaction. It's inviting us to a table. Eventually, we all come to the realization, as Rich Mullins said, God is right and everyone else is just guessing. At the end of the day, I'll trust his grace and trust in his love beyond what I can understand or grasp with my own wisdom. And I'll rest in the cross and believe in the resurrection without knowing how or why. Trust that it all was a part of inviting you and me into something that's greater than we can understand. And I'll respond simply by saying, thank you, Jesus, for everything. And perhaps that's the greatest sinner's prayer of all. If today your heart is moved to know Jesus more, just simply say, Jesus, I receive you by grace through faith. Thank you for what you did for me on the cross. Thank you for redeeming me. Thank you for restoring me. Thank you for resurrecting me to newness of life. I receive that grace by faith today. Now fill me with your Holy Spirit. Teach me to hear your voice. Thank you, Jesus. If you'd like to write to us, you can do so by writing to Faith Mountain Ministries, Box 595, Marshall, Minnesota, 56258. Go to BillVanderbush.com or VanderbushMinistries.com to listen to this broadcast and others again. One of the best ways to grow in grace is to study the scriptures. Go to BillVanderbush.com and download the Ephesians and Hebrews Bible studies today. This is Bill Vanderbush from all of us here at Faith Mountain Ministries. Until next time, may the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.